Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, thousands of global Jewish advocates were supposed to have been in Berlin for the AJC Global Forum. Unfortunately, the pandemic had other plans. But we weren't just going to cancel our critical conference. So we took the Global Forum virtual. All week, thousands of people from around the world have been tuning in on AJC.org to watch high-level addresses, intimate conversations, and fierce debates over the future of Israel, America, and Europe. Over the course of this episode, we're going to bring you parts of those conversations. Dr. Anwar Gargash is the United Arab Emirates Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. This week, he joined the AJC Virtual Global Forum for a conversation with his friend and our chief policy officer, Jason Isaacson. In doing so, he became the highest level official from an Arab country without relations with Israel to publicly address an American Jewish audience. Let's listen in to some of that conversation now. I want to begin by thanking the distinguished minister, not only for taking the time to share his insights with AJC and our many thousands of guests on this virtual platform, but for the multiple times that he and his colleagues and the leadership of the UAE have met with AJC over the 20 plus years that we have been regularly traveling to his country in pursuit of regional peace and cooperation and understanding. We're meeting with government officials when they have visited the United States. Dr. Gargash, it's very good to see you again. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you. I'd like to begin by thanking you for hosting me today. And uh, I trust that this will be an opportunity for a frank and constructive discussion, which is much needed. I want also to take the opportunity to thank the AGC for what has been quite a remarkable bridge to the region. There has been a lot of work that was done through numerous visits to all the countries of the region, to all the countries of the Gulf. And I think this uh, sort of building and understanding, the fruit of the AGC's work over this period has been quite impressive and substantive. So thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you very much for those remarks, Dr. Gargash. The UAE has a proud tradition of philanthropy, including major charitable donations uh, here in the United States. How has your country contributed to the global fight against the coronavirus pandemic? And what is your assessment of international cooperation in this fight generally? Closer to home, please talk about public health cooperation across the Middle East. How successful has it been? How can it be improved going forward? What specific role has the UAE played? And I note, by the way, that the UAE has twice in recent weeks sought to send medical aid to the Palestinians via Israel. Feel free to discuss that as well. I would actually agree with a lot of analysts who have said that our national responses have been more important than what I would call regional responses or global responses. Every country really has sort of looked into its own internal situation, and this raises a lot of issues really about global cooperation, regional cooperation on issues such as public health. Now, if you look really at that policy, it's interesting because in my opinion, we have come with a very, I would say, organized approach nationally, which has allowed us to actually come and try and help others in bilateral relations or regionally and otherwise. 
we've, I think, done something very successfully, which is separate the political from the humanitarian. So here, for example, we have no relationship with Israel, but at the same time, we have recognized that this is an area that we need to cooperate together because it is one that touches uh, human beings, you know, far away from their religions and affiliations and race and this and that. Let's look at um, the long-term effects of the pandemic. Um, the long lockdown, uh, the widespread and deep economic disruptions, the kind of effect that they will have on regional stability and security. Not every country of the region has the kind of resources that the UAE does. You throw in the recent plunge in oil prices and the crisis across the region really is amplified. Are you forecasting a regional power relationship restructuring, um, potential conflict between states, a spike in out-migration perhaps from the Gulf states? Or do you see a softer landing after the pandemic? I would say that things will change and things will stay the same. To suppose that fundamental issues that we have not been able to tackle for 40 and 50 and 60 years will suddenly you know, change overnight, I think is expecting too much, unfortunately. But at the same time, I think that we need to try and work at the edges of things. So clearly, I think we need to avoid rhetoric that leads to escalation. We need to avoid confrontation because everybody will be affected in terms of demographics, in terms of economy, and so on and so forth. So clearly, if we can't really turn this area from a troubled uh, region into an ideal region, which I think it will be very difficult to see that sort of sea of change, at least let us work to make it a little bit more stable, a little bit more safe, a little bit more connected. Among the changes that we have seen in the Middle East in recent years, and you're alluding to that, and in fact, the UAE has played an important role, and you personally have played an important role in this change, is new thinking about Israel's place in the region. While your government has always been clear about its support for the Arab Peace Initiative and the creation of an independent Palestinian state, there have been visits to the UAE by Israeli government ministers. What's the way forward to realizing that vision, and what obstacles, if any, lie in the way? Fundamentally, is can I have a political disagreement with Israel, but at the same time try and bridge other areas of the relation? I think I can. And I think this is fundamentally where we are. Today, we are, for example, facing COVID-19 challenge. And if I am able, working with the UN and working with uh, through the UN with Israel to try and bring support to the Palestinians, a very fragile health service, etc., then why not? How does that really affect my position vis-a-vis issues of the day, such as, for example, the proposed annexation? I think 60, 70 years of the relationship has shown that the full breakup of the relationship between Israel and the Arab countries has increased the animosity and built, in my opinion, a huge and deep gulf that could have been much easier to bridge, in my opinion. So clearly, the UAE today is part and parcel of the Arab consensus that basically looks at the solution as a two-state solution, for example. The UAE also wants to see continued Palestinian-Israeli negotiations. The UAE 
uh, is clearly against any annexation as being proposed by the current Israeli government. Having said that, that is the political domain. Now, do I have to really look at all the other domains and make them uh, basically almost, you know, sort of static because of the political domain? I think we've tried that over many years as a group of Arab countries, and I don't think it has really led to what we want in terms of bringing stability to the region. This is enlightening and fascinating and really encouraging. I want to thank you for addressing the HAC Global Forum and for your thoughtful, your candid observations, and more than anything, for the refreshing outlook that you and His Highness Sheikh Abdullah and the entire leadership of the UAE consistently bring to the challenges that confront the Middle East and the challenges that confront all of us who are dedicated to peace and progress in your region. In conclusion, I want to thank you. I want to thank the AJC, and I want to assure you that the UAE will continue on its path of moderation, on its path of prosperity, and on its path also of creating a very successful and forward-looking country in the region. Thank you, Dr. Gargash. Thank you. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey served two terms as mayor of Newark before he became the longest-serving black Democrat currently in the Senate. Last year, he addressed AJC Global Forum by video as a 2020 presidential candidate. On Wednesday, he sat down for a conversation with my colleague Julie Raymond, AJC's Deputy Director of Policy and Diplomatic Affairs, to share his thoughts on the fight for racial equality in the United States and how the Jewish community can be effective allies. Here is a portion of that conversation. It is my great pleasure to introduce a leader in the fight for American civil rights and racial justice, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Senator, thank you so much for being with us today. So good to be with you. Thank you. Of course. You've been on the ground floor of many recent bills to address racism, from finally making lynching a federal crime, to the Justice and Policing Act, to a bill to remove Confederate statues from the Capitol. Recognizing that it has taken us 400 years to get to this point and that much progress needs to be made, can you help us understand, as we prioritize our advocacy, what's the hierarchy of need in your view? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you. AJC has been an extraordinary champion for justice. You live so many of the highest ideals of Judaism, this idea that if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? And I think the thread that ties together all of the issues that I know you all hold to your core, justice, equality, an end to racism, anti-Semitism, bigotry of any kind, I think a lot of this work on the bills that you mentioned have to deal with getting people's consciousness raised. We've become too comfortable with injustice in this country. We have a criminal justice system that is way out of whack with the rest of humanity. We are the mass incarceration nation incarcerating often the most vulnerable people into our prisons and jails, people that need health care, that need addiction treatment, folks that are often criminalized just for being poor. And the challenge is, is most of us just aren't aware of a lot of the injustices. What we see now across this country with people protesting in the streets, all 50 states, thousands of cities, is that it's a wonderful thing that you see such diverse groups of folks 
who are confronting the injustices of our times. And so if there's an area for AJC to, in terms of prioritizing, it's just that awareness where people need to be maladjusted to injustice again and need to recognize that they are invested in the outcomes and to do nothing is complicity. That makes legislation passing a lot easier and a lot quicker when there are more Americans whose voices are demanding that we create real change. You make it sound sort of common sense, but sometimes the most common sense efforts end up being really difficult. I feel that way. Today's a a very frustrating day as we're trying to get hearings going around the justice and policing issue. And I have to remind myself uh, when I feel on days like this frustrated or feel like I'm banging my head against implacable walls of resistance, I have to remind myself that how long it took to pass civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation, But people didn't give up. And as we say the names of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, let's not just say their name, but remember the conviction of people who faced the same uh, wretchedness or worse. Emmett Till yet still found a way, like Mamie Till did when she left the casket open for her murdered son with this brutalized body lying there as a call to conscience of others. Change doesn't come from Washington. It comes to Washington by people who are willing to take the darkness of our times and be light workers. That arc of the moral universe that King talked about that bends towards justice, there are people out there that have to take responsibility for being the arc benders and realize that from workers' rights that we take for granted, from suffrage to civil rights legislation, it really took the demands of millions of people in diverse coalitions that ultimately created the atmosphere that we can make change. And that's what actually gives me hope right now in this moment. I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, The first time that I met with you in your office, we spoke about the historically close relationship between Blacks and Jews, especially during the civil rights movement. And I think that we can be proud that at critical moments, our communities walked together and stood shoulder to shoulder. I think it's clear that we still need each other, right? Racism and anti-Semitism have not abated, but the relationship isn't what it used to be. What do we need to do to rebuild that foundation? Well, don't let a few individuals ever steal away from the enduring truth of incredible alliances between Blacks and Jews in this country. Right here, this conversation is a testimony to that truth. I look at the people out protesting right now, and I see people from all different religious backgrounds, and yes, Jews leading uh, uh, many of the calls for justice. So I often worry about simplifying this down and not realizing that I see it in so many areas in which Blacks and Jews are partnering uh, against injustice. But you're right, relationships always need work. They always need tending to. And I think they flourish the best when you have individuals that say, your suffering, your challenges, your injustices, I see them as my injustices. I just came off the Senate floor where Van Hollen was talking about an African-American man who caught people dumping on his property. They were white men. And he told them to leave. They got angry with him that they wouldn't allow him them to dump a refrigerator on their property. They leave. They bring back three more men. They surround him, menacing him, jeering at him. He has a lawful gun, on, and he pulls out his gun with one hand, his cell phone with the other, calls the police. They arrive. They arrest the black man, the pastor, on his own property and drag him to jail before the sheriff realized who he was and that they made a terrible, terrible mistake. Well, this happens every single day in this country. Are we comfortable with that? We may witness the torture of a black man with a knee upon his neck, 
can't we understand that those are the ones that are caught on videotape? What kind of country are we? Nothing will change unless we do. And if we want to be about alliances, my voice has to speak up about a 50% increase in anti-Semitism over the last two years in our country. Vandalism to temples, threats and Nazi swastikas being painted. My silence in that face is complicity. We didn't have to, the horrors that happened in Pittsburgh, we didn't talk enough about the rise of anti-Semitism in our country. We were silent to it. You know, I'm reminded of James Baldwin's letter to Angela Davis when she was in prison. And he just said, if they come for you in the morning, they will come for me at night. Hate is hate. And it's endemic, unfortunately. Systematic racism is endemic in too many of our institutions. We are bound together in many ways through experience. Thank you for that. I think in so many ways, these times are those times. But in some ways, they're not, right? We're not in the same era of James Baldwin and Angela Davis. And there are protests and movements in this country that recently, and because of Israel, have routinely rejected or actively alienated Jews. And my question is this, is how can Jews actively be advocates of the Black community now if other allies would rather exclude us than have us be a part of their ranks? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I feel that question as much as I hear it where I have been frustrated myself with seeing uh, forces trying to delegitimize the state of Israel and see uh, individuals who don't even believe the Jewish homeland should exist. And it hurts me. And especially in this environment as a senator, I get frustrated when people try to make it a partisan issue in order to score political points one way or the other. And so there's cynical folks who want to try to uh, divide alliances, uh, divide unity, to exploit fear and bigotry to whatever their political aim is. And so as I learned from one of the greatest books I've ever read, Man's Search for Meaning and Viktor Frankl, where he, he talked about you're defined in that space between stimulus and response, how you choose to respond to this world. Uh, you're not defined by the hatred. You're not defined by the divisiveness. And so in the face of those who try to divide, in the face of people who want to try to delegitimize, my hope always is that we will live up to our highest values anyway. And I'll never forget when the Muslim ban came in, in January of 2017, and I raced out to Dulles Airport with a federal court order to make sure those detained families from other countries, Muslim families, would get access to lawyers. But when I got into the concourse, and I saw a concourse full, hundreds and hundreds of Americans singing songs and chanting and patriotic slogans. And that was one of the most beautiful things I saw that evening, was a circle of Orthodox Jews with kippahs on and tzitzahs hanging out, celebrating in glee over Muslims coming into our country. I get chills now when I think about it, the, the beauty of these people who lived their values, I believe fundamentally that before you tell me about your religion, show it to me and how you treat other people. I still remember them linking arms and dancing like I was at a Jewish wedding. That's how much joy they found in strangers, in greeting strangers, because they were once strangers in a strange land. 
So there will always be darkness. There will always be bigotry. I don't think we can ever think that we've snuffed it out. We must remain always vigilant. But what will define the character of this country, what will define the Jewish people and the black people who are interwoven into the fabric of America, what will define us is how we respond to that darkness. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege of speaking with the first black secretary of the Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch. We asked him this question. Some might look at you and say, what inequality? Here is an incredibly accomplished and respected senator who worked hard and won election after election. To some, you are proof, right? Bonnie Bunch is proof, Barack Obama is proof that there are no longer boundaries or issues of access in America. What do you say to that? Well, look, I don't know if folks want to point to me as somehow to relieve us of the burden to deal with the enduring racial challenges of our country. And my experiences alone show me that we can do so much better. When I got to the United States Senate, I was shocked. It was the least diverse place I had ever worked. And me and Brian Schatz, a great senator, Jewish senator, uh, and I went to Chuck Schumer, great senator, also happens to be Jewish. And the three of us said, we got to do something about this. And we decided to have every Democratic senator have to publish their diversity statistics. Well, guess what's happened since is since then you've seen a lot more people of color hired and and which is important to me because this body is making laws in places like the Judiciary Committee that disproportionately seem to impact black and brown people. And so I think that anybody who wants to say that somehow we're in a post-racial society needs to look at the data and look at the evidence from the criminal justice system to environmental injustice to our economy to our healthcare system and see that when you control for other factors, that race is still a very dominant influence in what kind of healthcare you'll get, what kind of education you'll get, what kind of job opportunities you'll get, what kind of encounters you'll have with the criminal justice system. And so I'm remarkably blessed, but I grew up in a household that even the house I grew up in, in 1969, it was Literally, my parents were turned away and told it was already sold. And a white couple posing as home buyers came right after my parents and found out it was still for sale. They walked into the real estate agent on the day of the closing. The white couple didn't show up to their closing. Instead, my dad did. And a lawyer happened to be a Jewish lawyer, Marty Friedman. And they walked into the real estate agent's office and confronted them. And the real estate agent didn't relent. He punched Marty Friedman in the face and sicked a dog on my dad. Well, eventually, after a lot of rigmarole, I moved into this town. As my dad used to say to me, boy, don't you walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. You drink deeply from wells of freedom and opportunity that you didn't dig. They taught me that, yeah, I had horrible conversations with my parents about being realized that, you know, take care (laughs) of yourself. Because whether it's encounters with police, people are going to see a large black man as a suspect to be feared. But they also told me, that that doesn't define me. What I do with the blessings I've received, I have an obligation to make the most out of every opportunity presented to me. And I'll tell you, you know, my parents taught me that the greatest thing I could do is not personal accomplishment, but service to others. And that I couldn't pay back the blessings I had, I had to pay them forward. And so I've had a remarkable life, but I cannot in any way be comfortable with my accomplishments when there's so many Americans from LGBTQ Americans, trans black Americans who are being killed at alarming disproportionate rates. I can't be comfortable when I still live in a nation 
where hatred towards Jews is made manifest through violent action. This is still a nation where we have much work to do. And the only way we could prove worthy of the sacrifices, suffering, bloodshed, trauma that our ancestors overcame to give us the privileges we enjoy is not to grow comfortable, but to stay with an urgent, everyday urgency, asking yourself the question, what am I doing for others? And I'll, I'll end with, with just this. I get very emotional when, when I think about the black men I've had conversations with, including Lonnie Bunch. I watched him in an interview say that when he saw George Floyd killed, one of his feelings was that it could have been me. And so maybe there's some wisdom in the Torah and this overlap between the words of the Torah and the words of a king, Martin Luther King. At the place where he's dead, where he was killed, after giving this powerful speech that called to a mountain in Israel named Mount Nebo, called to the Old Testament, the Torah story of, of, of Moses going to the mountaintop and seeing the promised land. And in that final speech, King said, I've been to the promised land and I've seen over. I've been to the mountaintop, I'm sorry, and I've seen over, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will make it to the promised land. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And then just hours later, he's slain at the Lorraine Motel after being prophetic in that speech about Mike not getting this to the promised land himself. Well, if you go to the Lorraine Motel right now, you will see a marker there where he died with words of the Torah on it. And there were the words of Joseph's brothers. They exclaimed these words before they grabbed Joseph and threw him into a well to die. But we know he didn't die there. He rose up and helped lead a nation through crisis, Egypt. And the words that Joseph's brothers exclaimed are these, Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him and see what becomes of his dream. How many Americans have died for the dream of this country? How many people have died being shortchanged by those who would cheapen the dream? And, and the question that has to be answered is not by the echoes of our ancestors, but by us. What will become of our dream? Will it become divided, demeaned, degraded? Will we perish in the pit of darkness? Or will we in this generation, like those before us in dark and challenging times, will we rise over hate, rise over discrimination, rise over the challenges of our time? If not now, when? This is the moment. This is the time. And I'm grateful to have allies and friends who share my conviction that the dream will not die and that we can still have impossible hope that we can make the dream real in our generation. We have the hope and the willingness to work. And we're proud to work with you. Thank you for your, for your vision, for your leadership, for your friendship, and frankly, for this inspiration that I think we all needed during this time. Thank you. Well, Yasha Koch to you and all, all the folks uh, within your phenomenal organization has been friends of mine long before I became a senator. So thank you. It is a time-honored AJC tradition to feature civil yet forceful debates at the AJC Global Forum each year. We weren't going to give that up just because we are meeting virtually. Without further ado, here is AJC Director of Communications, Avi Mayer, to introduce our great debate on the future of the West Bank. 
The West Bank is, in many respects, the Jewish heartland. Known in Hebrew as Yehuda v'Shamron, or Judea and Samaria, it is where Jewish kings reigned and where Jewish prophets preached. And it is today home to some 450,000 Israelis. It is also home to an estimated 2.7 million Palestinians, many of whom have lived there for generations and none of whom have ever had a sovereign state to call their own. The question of what to do with the West Bank has vexed Israeli decision makers since Israel came into possession of the territory during the 1967 Six-Day War. Now the Israeli government appears to be considering the unilateral extension of Israeli sovereignty to parts of the West Bank, a move fiercely opposed by Palestinians who claim the territory for a future Palestinian state. Where should Israel go from here? With us to debate this pressing question today are two distinguished guests and friends of AJC. Member of Knesset Merav Michaeli of Israel's Labor Party, who was previously a prominent journalist and commentator, and Ambassador Dori Gold, a veteran Israeli diplomat, including as permanent representative to the United Nations and current president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Welcome to you both. Let's get started. Member of Knesset Michaeli, your opening statement, please. The state of Israel has existed, unfortunately, twice as long with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict at this form, twice as long as it has without it. So to a large extent, it doesn't know itself without this conflict. But we need to go back to the forming of the state of Israel and ask ourselves, what is the Zionist dream? What is the Zionist vision? And I think it is very clear. It is a state for the Jewish people, a democratic state for all the Jewish people. Now, in order to have that, we need to have a border that separates us from the 2.7 million Palestinians who live in the West Bank. If possible, a border of peace, which I strongly believe is achievable despite the failures in the past. This is a border that will maintain Israel not only secure, but will ensure its identity as the democratic home of the Jewish state and will ensure its long-lasting existence for hopefully forever. Annexing unilaterally now parts of the West Bank, doesn't matter how big or small, will seriously jeopardize the future of Israel, the security of Israel, and unfortunately the mere existence of it. This is a grave mistake that we should not do under any circumstances. Thank you, Member of Knesset Michaeli. Ambassador Gold. You know, I think it's impossible to have this discussion without having a sense of what's at stake. Why is the future of the West Bank such a critical issue for Israel? Why does it engender such strong feelings and debate? I think the first reason is you have to look at the geostrategic position of where the West Bank is located. This is not a typical conflict in the middle of Central Asia. And the West Bank is adjacent to the uh, Israeli coastal plain, where 70% of our population is located and 80% of our industrial capacity is located. Therefore, should any hostile forces in the future take over the West Bank, which we also call Judea and Samaria, the results of that could be disastrous for our country, which is why we have to seek demilitarization of the area. We can't allow it to just continue onward with any kind of hostility that we might face. Now, we thought in the past that if we just withdrew from territory over which 
there is controversy, contested areas, that that would reduce the hostile intent of our adversaries. And you know where we tried that out? We tried that out in the Gaza Strip. And that was in 2005 when Prime Minister Sharon put forward his plan for the unilateral Israeli pullout. And what we found was that actually the hostility in Gaza increased after we pulled out. Thank you, Ambassador Gold. Member of Knesset Micheli, your rebuttal. Uh, it's absurd, actually, that Ambassador Gold should speak about security. Because A, let's remember that the state of Israel, when it was much younger, much smaller, much less developed, with a much smaller and less developed army, managed to live very securely in the narrow borders without the West Bank, and moreover, to win a glorious victory in the 67 war when we occupied the West Bank. Moreover, today, one of the main foundations of Israel's security and Israel's security policy today is the peace treaty that we have with the Kingdom of Jordan. This is the longest border that Israel has, and it is kept very, very secure, a lot thanks to the cooperation that the Jordanians are doing their part in keeping this border safe. And one needs to admit the Palestinian Authority, despite every conflict that we have had with them and are having with them constantly, are maintaining the security cooperation. Now, a unilateral annexation will jeopardize all this stability that we have. It will create a lot of instability in the West Bank itself. It may cause escalation also from Lebanon. And it's not for nothing that the vast majority of people from the security system in Israel are strongly opposed to this move. Thank you, Member of Tessa Michaeli. Ambassador Gold, your rebuttal. Frankly, you know, I never said that I was going to argue for annexation. And there are two reasons why I have not argued for annexation. The first is that it's the wrong term. You know, one of the things I did when I was ambassador of the United Nations is I would read the record of previous ambassadors when certain issues would come up. And it was fascinating to find that in 1967, right after the Six-Day War, Pakistanis called our move in Jerusalem when we added territory from the eastern parts of Jerusalem that were under Jordan previously. We added them to Israel. And Iban complained that Israel is being labeled as an annexationist, that it was annexing territory. It wasn't annexing territory for a very good reason. You annex territory that belongs to somebody else. But if the territory was assigned to be part of the Jewish national home, how do you call that annexation? Yitzhak Rabin felt very strongly that at the end of the day, Israel has to retain a united city of Jerusalem. And in his final speech to the Knesset on October 5th, 1995, he stated that. So if you're for dividing Jerusalem, then you got a problem with that and supporting uh, Rabin's legacy. Depicting this as a debate or as a discussion between you know, those who want to concede territory and those who want you know, everything for Israel is not true. It's a much more complicated issue. Ambassador Gold just showed two of the tactics that the right is using constantly. One, there are rules. I kept the rules. He didn't. 
So that's constantly what we're, uh, how we're dealing in Israel. We're playing by the rules, they're breaking the rules. And so this is the game we're at constantly. And I will root to anyone who can achieve in an agreement as much land for Israel as possible. But I believe in reaching an agreement because every war and every battle must end in a political discussion and a political achievement. The only true security is peace. And no matter how much Dory Gold, Ambassador Gold, will convince us that this land used to be our ancestors and was given to us, it was also given to other people and they live there now. So unless there's some magic stick that Ambassador Gold has that will make 2.7 million Palestinians just disappear, then we need to find a solution for the security and the longevity of the state of Israel. I'm going to ask one last question that actually will be for both of you. Bearing in mind the reality on the ground, including the presence of hundreds of thousands of Israelis over the 1967 Green Line and the bifurcation of the Palestinian population between the West Bank and Gaza, what's the optimal solution to the conflict? And in your judgment, is there a realistic pathway to get there? Ambassador Gold, why don't you go first? Basically, if you go with the demographics where we have people living, Palestinians living, Israelis living, within Israel, within the West Bank, within Gaza, it's a messy map. It is not a clean map. But you know something? We made a mistake with Gaza disengagement, and we put thousands of Israelis, close to 10,000 Israelis, in an impossible situation, forcing them out of their homes. Whatever we do, however we draw the maps, we should never again force Israelis out of their homes to make a peace plan work, and we should never force Palestinians out of their homes either. Now, that means the map is going to reflect where people are living. And when you look at that map, you're going to say, how are you going to make this map work? We will make it work. And we will create a situation which creates the foundation of some kind of new, stable outcome. Thank you, Ambassador. Member Kassam Michaeli, your vision for a final peace agreement. I know that if we decide, if Israel decides that it wants to reach, reach a solution, then we can reach at, at least the two-state solution, let's say, uh, with a Palestinian state in the West Bank. Now, will the Palestinians be willing, able, among themselves, to um, agree on one state, or do they want to have two states, a Hamas state, a Fatah state? That's not my business. We will continue protecting the state of Israel as we have always. But I believe that we should really work for a just solution and not only using more and more power, because that is something that never lasts, never, ever. Now, I want to already be over this, not because I'm tired of it, but as I said, because it really does crumble the state of Israel. It really does eat the foundations of what it means to be a Jewish state. Israel has become too much about the conflict and too little about itself. The question of how come Israel is the only state in the world that does not recognize equally all of the Jews, all kinds of Jews, is partly because that we are so 
deeply sunk in the conflict rather than sorting out the question of the homeland for all of the Jewish people. Thank you, Member Professor Michali. We've reached the time for closing statements. Ambassador Gold, why don't you go first? We have lived for many years in a situation where we have been branded all kinds of names, all kinds of terms that are not true. And we have sought peace and we have sought stability for our people. I will never forget after the 67 war, and I got to go back that far, when the Soviet Union decided they were going to brand us as the aggressors in that conflict. And they went to the Security Council to have us branded as an aggressor, and they lost. And they tried to go to the General Assembly of the United Nations and have us branded as an aggressor, and they lost again. And why is that relevant? Because we knew, we knew at the time of the morality of our position. And that's what we will know today. And that's what we will know in the future. We're willing to make a compromise, a territorial compromise. But we are not willing to put the people of Israel in danger. We insist on peace with security. And that is going to be the policy, the motto, and the mission of every Israeli diplomat in the years ahead. Thank you, Ambassador. Member of Knesset Michali, your closing statement. Ah, yes, Ambassador Gold is insisting on narrative, on language, on consciousness. And of course, it's all very important, but at the end of the day, there's reality. A unilateral annexation, as small as it may be, or as big as it may be, endangers Israel from the Palestinian aspect, from the Jordanian aspect, from the Gulf countries that we've managed to cooperate with. It jeopardizes the um, bilateral, bipartisan support Israel has in the U.S. It jeopardizes Israel from within its society. And the question is, what do we gain? And there is zero gain here. That is the biggest drama of all. And so, really, there's no reason in the world why we should pursue this other than political or personal interests that will lead to a very, very heavy toll that will be put on this realm. Member of Knesset Michaeli, Ambassador Gold, on behalf of AJC, thank you both for joining us on the virtual Global Forum stage today for such a timely debate. Thank Thanks you for, for having us. Bye-bye. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Remko Limhus, the brand new director of AJC Berlin. Remko, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Well, as everyone at AJC understand, despite the fact that the Virtual Global Forum was a huge success, reaching more people than we ever could have hoped, and a huge shout out to the team that organized it, for us in Berlin, it was bittersweet. Over the last couple of days, we haven't been able to stop thinking about what could have been in Berlin. All our speakers were lined up, all our meetings with partner organizations and politicians confirmed, all excursions to historic sites throughout the city booked. We've kept thinking about what it would have been like to welcome all our AJC friends, colleagues, and Global Forum participants to Berlin. It would have been truly historic gathering. But we are very glad that much of our work has incorporated into the Virtual Global Forum. 
issues in Europe and particularly Germany have come to the fore. And one of these issues is without a doubt the rise in anti-Semitism. I and we in Berlin have long been concerned about the steady rise of anti-Semitism in Germany and across Europe. While AJC has achieved many policy victories, I still feel that mainstream society has not fully appreciated the magnitude of the problem until now, how grave the threat is, and what a catastrophe it is that some question whether Jewish life has a future in Germany. 75 years after the war, is Germany a home for Jews? In this climate, I've also been thinking about how everyone is so quick to call out anti-Semitism of their political opponents, but fall short of acknowledging the problem on their own side. I've been thinking about the deterioration of civic public discourse. In recent years, debate, rather than being an exchange of argument, has turned into a deathmatch. It's not about ideas, but about winning and humiliating the other side. Surely social media is not helpful, but I'm thinking about how to reverse this trend. Can we go back to a situation where you can disagree with someone and still acknowledge that, even though our politics differ, this doesn't make them a bad person? To do so means acknowledging that the world is a messy place and that people are not all good or all bad, but there are huge gray zones. And lastly, and on a more lighter note, I'm thinking a lot about my favorite soccer club of Hamburg and if they will move up to the first division again. Yes, soccer is being played again in Germany, but right now it is not looking good for Hamburg. And I am now turning it over to Manja. Sefi, Remco, at our Shabbat table, we'll be discussing the importance of showing up. AJC has been showing up for more than a century. Even though we couldn't show up in Germany this week, Remco, AJC was present in Germany shortly after the end of World War II. It was present in America during the civil rights struggle. It was present in the former Soviet bloc after the fall of communism. And today, on Juneteenth, which marks the day news finally reached the remote Lone Star State that African Americans were now free, today, AJC is now present in two cities where brutal murders by law enforcement illustrate how much work there is left to do to make sure African Americans across this nation are truly free. On Thursday, as AJC closed its virtual global forum, our CEO, David Harris, announced that AJC has opened two more regional offices in memory of those murder victims. One will be in Louisville, Kentucky, where Brianna Taylor, a medical worker asleep in her bed, was shot by police after they forcibly entered her home. The other will be in the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, where George Floyd died after calling out for his mother and pleading with a police officer kneeling on his neck that he could not breathe. David said AJC wants to be part of the solution. What that solution looks like remains to be seen. We've never seen racial justice in this country. Not in 1865, and not in 2020. Of course, just opening offices solves nothing. It's what AJC does there that matters. But AJC doesn't just show up. As David also said on Thursday, AJC has a history of building relationships, getting people to talk to one another, learn about each other, appreciate each other, Showing up is important, yes, but the really hard work is relating. The value of those relationships was on full display this week. At AJC Virtual Global Forum, we heard from German leaders, including the Chancellor, two prime ministers, and Arab leaders once considered unimaginable at a Jewish event. Why? Because AJC has been building relationships for decades. It's why longtime beat reporters are so good at what they do. They build relationships. It's why business people succeed. 
they build relationships. So I'm optimistic. Now, with 24 regional offices across the country in Atlanta, Chicago, L.A., Houston, and now Louisville and Minneapolis, St. Paul, I'm hopeful that this renewed focus on racial justice will yield some progress and some relationships. And while I know these relationships don't happen overnight, I just hope it doesn't take more decades. That's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi? Well, on June 19th, 1865, two months after the Civil War ended in Confederate surrender and two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, news finally reached Galveston, Texas, that slavery was no more. Today, the black community in America celebrates the anniversary of that day as Juneteenth. AJC has had a presence in Galveston where the first Juneteenth was celebrated since our founding in 1906. Our founders created an organization to keep Jews safe. But they knew then what time has only made more evident. Jewish safety and success in the United States is bound up with that of other minorities, including our brothers and sisters in the black community. Just five years after its founding, AJC had already taken up the cause of racial justice, pushing New York State to bar discrimination on the basis of race in public accommodation. In 1911, as Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. would point out when accepting AJC's American Liberties Medallion in 1965, that was a time when, quote, few men dared to speak out about racial injustice. But the successful passage of that New York bill in 1913 led many other states to follow suit, slowly, too slowly, paving the way for the landmark advances of the 1960s. This Juneteenth, when AJC joins our black brothers and sisters in celebrating, this Juneteenth is no less a festival of freedom than the Jewish festival of Passover, but it also demands introspection no less than the Jewish high holiday of Yom Kippur. What more must we each do to root out the racism that exists in our country, in our states and cities, in our own communities, in our own homes, in our own souls? How can our synagogues and organizations be forces for good in this fight? How can we be allies to our black partners? How can we ensure that our Jewish spaces are as welcoming to black Jews as they are to white ones? These and more are the questions that we must grapple with. And what better place to start than at our Shabbat tables? Juneteenth provides a welcome opportunity to reflect on my favorite lines from what has been termed the black national hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Through faith that we will persevere, and with hope that a brighter day is dawning, and with a song on our lips, let us rejoice as we continue to make America the land of the free. Happy Juneteenth, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.